Welcome to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. Philip F. Lawler is the founder and editor of Catholic World News, the first English language news service on the internet. He is the author of 10 books on political and religious topics. He has been active in political campaigns as a speechwriter and organiser at the local, state and national levels. He lives in Massachusetts and he is here to talk about the response of the institutional Catholic Church to the COVID-19 crisis, which is a central theme of his latest book, Contagious Faith. There is no way that I can see that a bishop should bow to a governor or mayor on an issue of how the sacraments are celebrated. Of course, I recognize that the government, civil authorities have some responsibilities and churches should be designed and built in accordance with the fire codes and whatnot. But when you're talking about how do you celebrate mass, that's the province of the bishop. And if the mayor or the governor has something to say about it, the bishop should thank him kindly and remind him it's none of his business. A voyage of discovery in an uncommon age of unparalleled scientific economic, political, and social upheaval, Life on Planet Earth searches for the unvarnished truth, answers, solutions, and above all, hope for our existential crisis. My guest in a wee moment is Philip or Phil Lawler, a distinguished writer who has lots to say about the response of Catholic Church leaders to the COVID-19 crisis, especially the decision to shut down churches for an extended period. Now, I hope you're all well. We have an exciting guest on this episode, but I need to first put in a nice mention about a special friend. Let me just say that joy is that special quality that makes one healthier, wealthier and wiser. But a joyful outlook is a tough thing to muster in the post-pandemic age of economic decline and social unrest. Fortunately, a new book is bringing hope and timely actionable advice people can use to better their lives in the post-COVID era. From Ambassador of Joy, Barry Shore comes The Joy of Living, How to Slay Stress and Be Happy. Part workbook, part bullet journal, part memoir, this book serves as an inspirational guide to happiness and self-improvement in a time of unease and misgiving. Author Barry Shore shares his incredible story of perseverance after being afflicted with a crippling disease that left him completely paralysed overnight. Rather than wallow in self-pity, Shore instead chose to better his life and the lives of others, discovering the joy of living regardless of circumstances. In The Joy of Living, How to Slay Stress and Be Happy, Shore reveals 11 unusual yet practical strategies for finding peace and happiness each day. To order your book, please go to barryshore.com forward slash book barryshore.com forward slash book that's b-a-r-r-y 
S-H-O-R-E dot C-O-M forward slash book. BarryShore.com forward slash book. Sherlock, it's grand to have you back. Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. This breaks my heart, and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. My guest is Philip Lawler, founder and editor of Catholic World News, the first English-language news service on the internet. He is the author of 10 books on political and religious topics, and he, like many, many more, is not happy with how the leadership in the Catholic Church, many of the leaders, maybe not them all, responded to the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Welcome to my show, Phil. Thank you for having me. So it's a great title and it could mean a lot of things. Contagious faith. I think of, yeah, faith is contagious if you can evangelize in today's world, secular world. There's also great pockets and areas of great hope. But it has a specific meaning, and this is related to COVID-19. Take us through it. Tell us why people should read it. Well, the subhead, why the church must spread hope, not fear, in a pandemic, actually tells you something by inference. Uh, that's not what the church did, unfortunately. The reason I wrote this book is that I was appalled by the way the Catholic Church, not alone, uh, but the Catholic Church is, is my church, it is the church, uh, folded in the face of the pandemic and did not do what it should have done, which is inspire people with faith, give people a better sense of perspective, and above all, remind people that they should be as least as worried about their spiritual health as their physical health. In fact, if, if you have reason to worry about your physical health, all the more reason to make sure that your spiritual health is, is in shape. Uh, and unfortunately, when the epidemic came along, the Catholic Church more or less completely shut down, uh, shut down the sacramental life of the church, the lifeblood of the church at a time when it was most necessary. And had it been otherwise, had it done differently, I believe it would have been a great uh, witness to the world if we as Catholics had been able to say, yes, we understand there's a risk. Yes, we understand there's a disease out there, uh, but our faith is still the most important thing to us and we're willing to run some risks uh, for the faith and we're willing to act uh, with responsibly with the knowledge that we're not gonna live forever anyway, or rather we're not gonna live forever in this life anyway. And, and we should spreading hope rather than spreading fear. There was, there was no particular need for one more institution to help spread the panic. So you're saying that we should have been willing to take on some risk. Can you quantify that? Because there was fear that if there were church gatherings during the surge, it could have had 
extraordinary impact on our society and caused great physical toll. That's what we were told. And I'm not an epidemiologist. I don't know what would have happened. I do know that there is not one single uh, case of COVID that has been traced to a Catholic church through all of the months of the epidemic in the United States. There's a risk anytime you leave your house. There's a risk anytime you take a flight of stairs. Uh, we live with risk and we decide it's difficult to quantify. You asked me to quantify. It's difficult to quantify how much risk you're willing to take. Hmm. But we took risks to go to the grocery store throughout. Uh, we took risks uh, to go to the package store to get a six pack of beer. That was regarded as essential for some reason. Church worship was not regarded as essential, and churches were closed down. Now, what does that tell you uh, about the nature of your faith and the nature of your religion? Now, there was some pushback by church authorities. I'm thinking of the Diocese of Brooklyn here in New York and some other churches, evangelicals. They pushed back and told local authorities, no. We want to open our churches. And then, of course, the Supreme Court ruled in Brooklyn's favor as the surge started to ease. Do you think there was a big enough pushback by church authorities? It seemed that the bishops were basically uh, bending the knee to the government. Absolutely. That is my complaint. Time and again, a government authority, whether it was a governor or a mayor, would say, uh, would issue orders, uh, executive orders saying that there could be no public gatherings of more than 100 or more than 200 or whatever number he picked out of the air. And bishops in his jurisdiction would immediately send out their own orders saying the same thing. Now, this put us in an odd position because the bishops were able to say, oh, I didn't I didn't bow to the authority of the governor or of the mayor. That was my own decision. And I find that, frankly, a little hard to credit because time and again, the bishop issued the order right after the governor or mayor issued the order, and the bishop said the same thing. There is no way that I can see that a bishop should bow to a governor or mayor on an issue of how the sacraments are celebrated. Of course, I recognize that the government, civil authorities have some responsibilities and churches should be designed and built in accordance with the fire codes and whatnot. But when you're talking about how do you celebrate mass, that's the province of the bishop. And if the mayor or the governor has something to say about it, the bishop should thank him kindly and tell him, remind him it's none of his, uh, none of his business. Now, when there was pushback, I am a little embarrassed to say that with the exception of the Diocese of Brooklyn, it was almost invariably evangelical churches, not Catholic churches, that were doing the, uh, that were defending the prerogative, defending the First Amendment, really. And when the issue did get to the Supreme Court, that was the decision that the First Amendment was not abolished by the COVID epidemic. The First mm -hmm. Amendment is still in force. The government does not have the authority uh, to set up or shut down churches. And 
I don't understand why more of our bishops, more of our church leaders weren't ready to make that challenge from the get-go. Very interesting point. I think the Supreme Court decision was 5-4. I don't know who all the, you know, the five were, but we did have a change in the composition of the Supreme Court under Trump. So maybe we have one thing to be thankful to him for assuming they took the open the church side and the argument. Right. And it's not only the Supreme Court, it's also at the local level. There was there were occasions uh, where there was pushback that did not lead all the way to the Supreme Court. There was one case in Massachusetts, uh, an evangelical pastor in Worcester, Massachusetts, here near where I live, who challenged the restrictions. And it was revealing the way that was decided. Essentially, the governor or the governor's staff backed down very quickly. And two things that I learned from that. First, the governor and his staff recognized that they were not on very strong ground, uh, that a decision, a legal decision, if the case went forward, would likely go against them. Second, uh, the governor and his staff were not all that in, interested in uh, restricting churches. They apparently hadn't really thought very much about it. And when they were forced to think about it by this legal challenge, they became very amenable to a mutually agreeable decision. So a little bit of pushback went a long way. And it probably could have in many other cases if there had been enough pushback. And the Catholic Church, as by far the largest organized church in the United States, could have led the pushback, could have had a lot, could have exercised a lot more clout. Now, you have very close affiliation with the Catholic Church and well-sourced in it, and I'm sure you have a lot of strong relationships with individual priests and bishops. Did you hear anything through the grapevine, individual priests and bishops who are very upset about the church closures but felt their hands were tied? Not much. I did. Uh, well, individual, bish individual priests, absolutely. And there were a number of priests who... Uh, at least pushed the envelope of the orders that they'd received and in some cases uh, went beyond pushing the envelope and more or less openly uh, defied the rules. Um, but as far as uh, authoritative figures in the church, I did not hear a lot. There were many who said that they regretted the tight uh, restrictions on churches. There were many who issued statements saying it's unfair uh, to have grocery stores and, and mm. liquor stores open, but and tattoo parlors are open, but churches yeah. are not. Uh, but those are expressions of regret. That's not a very muscular way to approach it. I heard an interesting debate in Ireland between a commentator and a local bishop and the local bishop was addressing the church closures in Ireland, and they had some of the longest church closures in Europe. It was extraordinary given the history of Ireland's Catholic faith and a special place in many people's hearts, you know, for the faith. Uh, the bishop said, well, more or less said, if the faithful want to get the churches reopened, they should be more or less out on the streets protesting. He was pushing it back 
on the shoulders of the faithful rather than taking the lead. I found that maybe somewhat puzzling, certainly interesting. I found the situation in Ireland really hard to believe because there was a, a period of time there where it was illegal to say to, to celebrate mass in public. Mm. And for me growing up, you know, with my Irish ancestry, that it's just hard to fathom that you could reach a point where the Irish government would say the public celebration of mass is illegal, but it's not unprecedented. Certainly not in Ireland. Uh, there's, there's a long history of the suppression of the mass. And when that, when the mass was suppressed, there were faithful priests and faithful lay people who defied the law and celebrated the mass. And by the way, it did so prudently. They did so, you know, they tried to minimize the risk to themselves and to others, but they did not just knuckle under and say, we're not going to practice our faith. Well, the, all the churches are opened now, I believe, all around the country, certainly in the New York, New Jersey area, and I'm sure most other places. Is this a harbinger of things to come in American society and in the West as regards places of worship? Will the next epidemic or the next health risk, imaginary or real, be used to shut down churches? I think it could be. And that's a frightening precedent. You know, we seem to be emerging now from the worst of the COVID epidemic. We don't know. It might come back again. There might be another, uh, might be another surge when the, the, the weather gets cold at the end of this summer. And if it doesn't, there will be something else. You know that. And mm. it doesn't necessarily have to be an epidemic of this severity. There's always a flu season. And come the next flu season, are we going to be told, well, uh, because there's a risk that people will get sick, even if it's not nearly as sick, uh, you know, not nearly as grave a risk, will we be told, well, you should limit yourselves again, you should all wear masks, you should not have uh, more than 200 people in church, you shouldn't sing, and so forth. A precedent has been set, and where that precedent will go, it's very hard to predict, but Again, because there was so little pushback this time, I think it's a dangerous sort of precedent. Well, you can't help but think that if the ranks of lawmakers were filled with people, with more people of faith or some kind of faith, they would have taken a much different approach to the closures of churches. I mean, you can't exactly say that Governor Cuomo in New York is very um, disposed to the positions taken by the Catholic Church. We saw how he moved the agenda on abortion and other anti-family matters. Right. You have a pretty clear indication. We had a pretty clear indication early on in the shutdown when a whole lot of political leaders, civic leaders at the national and local level uh, did nothing about the Black Lives Matter protests, the Antifa protests, the mass. There were mass political demonstrations at a time when it was still illegal to have a pickup basketball game and nothing was done. It was clear early on that the rules didn't apply equally to everybody, that there was a political dimension to this. And when even after that, 
the harsh lockdowns continued on the Catholic Church and on other churches, that should have been a fair warning to the faithful of things, things to come. Well, isn't most of the dimension on this a secular dimension, that this great fear of mortality and dying, even an exaggerated fear, that at no risk at all, they want a no-risk environment out there, which is sort of impossible? Exactly. This is, this is a point that I tried to drive home in, in Contagious Faith, that it's rational to understand, it's rational to have a fear of death. Mm. But it's also rational uh, to know that sooner or later you're going to die. And we cannot guarantee you the right, the supposed right to be free from the threat of death by natural causes. You know, it's one of the things that I frankly resented was the argument that the Catholic Church should be at the vanguard of the uh, safety measures because we're pro-life and so we should be doing everything we can to protect human life. Well, yes, we do everything we can to protect human life from unnatural death, from from deliberate uh, destruction. We don't do everything we can to preserve human life from aging, from disease, um, you know, these are natural processes. Sooner or later, we will all get sick and die. Uh, and to try to create a zero-risk environment is nonsensical. It won't happen. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? It's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. We know some individual priests in different parishes had hybrid response to the closures. They um, set up confessionals in the parking lot and some tried to have uh, celebrate mass in-person mass in outdoor settings they're under the instructions of their bishop of course right and i salute those priests who did their utmost to deliver the sacraments and of course individual priests they are as you say they are bound by uh, obedience to their bishops and uh, so it's on the bishop's head if the if the priest is forbidden forbidden to deliver the sacraments. But I think the world of those priests who made an extra effort to do the parking lot masses and the confessionals out in the fields and all of these extraordinary things, for which, by the way, there's plenty of historical pro- precedent. A uh, number of times I was told, well, you know, during the plague, St. Charles Borromeo closed down the churches in Vienna. Uh, I'm sorry, in Milan, which is true, 
But what they don't say is that he closed down the churches and he celebrated mass in the streets. And he told his priests to do likewise. And he's told his priests, if you have to expose yourself to some physical danger in order to deliver the sacraments, then that's what you have to do. That's what you, you signed up for. That's your vocation mm -hmm. as a priest. Mm -hmm. And he assured them that if there were no other priests administering the sacraments in his archdiocese, he would be doing it himself. Where does this leave the Catholic Church going forward? COVID and the shutdowns have been hurtful and they've done some damage. Is there lasting damage from this? And what is it? I think there's going to be some lasting damage. There might also be some light at the end of the tunnel. The lasting damage that I see is, uh, well, bear in mind that this, didn't, this came at a time in an era when the Catholic Church is losing people, hemorrhaging, particularly young people leaving the faith. And at a time when we're having trouble keeping people in the pews, along comes this epidemic and the bishops tell us, well, don't worry too much. Uh, you don't have to come to church. You don't have to come to church on Sunday. It's you can watch it online. Right. It's going to be very, very difficult to walk that back, hmm. to tell people now, as many more bishops are doing every week, okay, we really should get back to church on Sunday. But mostly, most of the time when they make that announcement, they say, unless you're sick or you're fearful of being sick. Well, then that's a pretty large escape clause. And uh, to put it mildly, Catholics at this point don't need an escape clause. Mm. There are enough people staying away from Mass on Sunday already. Uh, giving them another reason to stay away is a formula for, for disaster. Uh, and that's, I think, the long-term danger. I think that the light at the end of the tunnel is that we have seen uh, enough of the people who have made a commitment, enough of the people, those priests who I mentioned a few minutes ago, the priest who made the special effort, uh, the parishes that opened up just as soon as they could and as vigorously as they could. And these places are magnets. And I've seen it in my own parish that how uh, when our parish opened up as much as it could, and people were coming from all over to mass at our parish and coming from other dioceses, uh, because they saw a lively community. And this is, this is what I hope uh, readers will come away from as the hopeful message of contagious faith, that when you have that sort of lively faith, that trust in the sacraments, it is contagious. It, and they want it, and they join it. You think about the church closings, and it strikes you that you mentioned some of those priests who were exceptional in their response. Wasn't it a great moment for the Catholic Church and, and faith communities to bring out the very best, and in the case of the Catholic Church, to, to show courage in the face of this government's mandates and for a kind of a revival, you know, for the bishops to stand up? hell or high water, we're opening the churches. We have to bring the sacraments. Isn't there a lot of people out there would admire the bishops for that and faithful oh, and say, yeah, this is great. We're with you 100%. I, I Absolutely. I think so. I think there are a lot of people, particularly as uh, 
after a while, the scope of the epidemic um, became more obvious. You know, I think at first, uh, early in 2020, everybody was scared uh, and nobody knew what to expect. Mm. And the predictions were frightening. Mm. And then as time passed, we said, okay, well, it's not, it's, it's certainly a serious disease. It's not nearly as frightening as we were first led to believe. It's, it's not uh, a major risk to most healthy people under the age of 80. Uh, and okay, that gave us a little perspective. And at that point, I think more and more people were ready to hear a message of hope and to, hear, to be given some perspective that went beyond this obsession with trying to eliminate every possible danger. You know, so many times I, I heard people talk about uh, how we have to eliminate this disease. Well, it might be years and years before we actually eliminate the disease. It's going to hang around in one, in one form or another, maybe mutations. Uh, what we really want is to be able to go along, to go ahead with our normal lives without a constant fear of the disease. And, you know, that's a two-part thing. That constant fear of the disease uh, may be irrational. What we really need is some perspective and what we really need is confidence and hope. You're a respected Catholic journalist and writer and commentator. How do you think the media in America and in the West covered the COVID crisis? I think the coverage was generally pretty awful. Uh, I refer to it in, in the book as, uh, as panic porn. There's one newspaper that I looked at regularly that every single day for a year, pretty much, the first headline would be something calculated to inspire fear. And then the number of deaths going up, the rate of positive tests is going up. And, and when there was some good news and some bad news, invariably the headline would focus on the bad news. You know, if, if the number of positive tests is going up, but the number of deaths is going down, we hear about the positive tests and vice versa. I know bad news sells, you know, the, the, the slogan, if it bleeds, it leads. Mm. But we needed some perspective. And we also needed some investigative reporting mm -hmm. about, you know, first, where did this come from? Uh, second, how accurate are the statistics? Uh, make sure that the statistics are not comparing apples and oranges. Uh, look into what was happening at the nursing homes in New York and New Jersey and elsewhere. Um, look into what's happening with the uh, vaccines and so forth. There's been a, a real uh, dearth of investigative reporting at a time when there is an awful lot of questions that could be asked. I mean, just the, the vaccines, look at the huge profits that are being made by the corporations, the large corporations that are distributing this vaccine, and they're being subsidized in their marketing in all sorts of different ways by the government. You'd have to be really idealistic not to recognize that there's put huge potential for abuse there and corruption. Yeah, we could have a whole separate discussion about how this was covered and reported and the facts and the statistics. I mean, the reality is most people, the vast majority of people recover from COVID. I mean, it's a very tiny percentage that die from it, and it's uh, the older cohorts. 
so it's quite amazing. A lot of it is fear, as you said. That's what people on your side of the argument say, which with a lot of merit and validity. Well, not just fear, but irrational fear. And yeah. most people, most people recover. And is there a possibility that you can die from it? Yes. I don't mean to minimize that because a lot of people have died from it. And it's sad. Yeah, we have to acknowledge that. I know people who got sick from it and some who died and they were they were an elderly couple. So rest our soul. We do have to acknowledge that, yes. At the same time, let's also recognize that the way we attack this disease also caused a lot of deaths. Mm. Uh, there are a lot of people who are dying now, are dead now, because they didn't get cancer screenings, because the hospitals weren't open. There's a lot of people who died of drug overdoses. Uh, there's a lot of people who committed suicide. The rates of drug overdose and suicide soared during the lockdown. And it's not just coincidence. It was, it was a very rough time for people who are already vulnerable in different ways. And those are casualties too. Sometimes the cure was worse than the disease. Amen to that. The name of your book is Contagious Faith, Why the Church Must Spread Hope, Not Fear in a Pandemic. Um, there's a lot of great chapters in it. The Empty Square, Who Closed the Churches, the cure worse than the disease, as you spoke about there, the virtual church, leper colonies, taking sacraments seriously, surrender to Caesar. That one I find interesting. Fear itself and open the doors facing our challenges. Maybe a quick summary of leper, not leper colonies in particular. That one's also interesting, but the one about Caesar. What's that one? Can you give us a quick summary? Surrender to Caesar. I We can only imagine who that is. Yeah, well, that's that's the discussion that we were having earlier about when does the government have the right to tell the church what to do? And my answer to that is never. The, the government has the right to tell the church how to behave as a citizen. You know, uh, how, the church has to obey the same laws as everybody else. But the government never has the right to tell the church how to worship. I know you have opinions about mask wearing, and uh, we don't want to get too deep in the weeds, but what's your thoughts about that? I never saw any convincing evidence that it did, did, did any good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was coming from Caesar as well. <laughs> it, was. <laughs> it, it was. And, you know, uh, you mentioned the, the leper colonies. This is what I, that was another chapter. I fear that what we have done is we have made out, made it out. We as a society have made it out so that people who don't wear masks uh, are viewed as a risk to everybody else. And, you know, now, Children are viewed as a risk, that they're not vaccinated. Maybe they're not wearing masks. We look at children as a vector for disease, which, by the way, in this case is complete nonsense because the children didn't get the disease, mm. with very few exceptions. One quick thought was that you, maybe I missed the messages and it just, it, it just wasn't widely reported. Did the bishop say we need to engage in um, you know, prayer vigils uh, to rid us of this irrational fear and maybe get rid of COVID and step up our prayer life at home. Was there any that kind of a message out there? It was out there. I'm not saying that it, it was absent, but it was definitely secondary uh, and it should have been primary. You know, I make the argument in Contagious Faith that if even if you weren't a Catholic, 
you should want Catholics to be praying for an end to this epidemic. You should want everybody to be doing whatever they can do, whatever is, you know, pulling out their best weapons. Uh, and uh, we should have been doing that. Yeah, we should have had more Eucharistic adoration rather than less. We should have had prayer vigils, as you suggest. Contagious faith, why the church must spread hope, not fear in a pandemic. The author is Philip F. Lawler. Go out and get it. It's a great read. Hey, Philip, it's or Phil. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for being my guest. Oh, I had a good time chatting with you, and thank you for having me. You've been listening to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. To reach the host or learn about advertising or sponsorship opportunities, call 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. That's 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com.